Well, if you're here last week, we took a week off of our sermon series, and uh, Aaron Bierke preached. And but today we're getting right back into our sermon series. In the, we're looking at the Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's a New Testament letter. We call it the, the letter to the Ephesians or the the book of Ephesians. Sometimes we just call it Ephesians. And our sermon series is titled "Identity in Christ." Now, the first two sermons were really over kind of one passage, one long prayer and one long praise. Verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 in the original Greek is just one big run-on sentence of 202 words. And now today's passage is right on the heels of that. It too in the Greek is a long, long sentence. It's 169 words. Um, In this prayer, Paul asks God to give this church in Ephesus, a deep understanding of God's victory for her through Jesus Christ. An awareness that would change them. An awareness that would change us if we would but be enlightened to it. Our passage, once again, is Ephesians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, we, 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 and we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these scriptural words given to us through your apostle Paul. We thank you um, that you have presented them before us this morning. We do pray for, for the, uh, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened and open to the the beauty of who you are and what you have done. Uh, may your spirit work in us in this very hour, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a house in Raleigh, North Carolina, that on the outside looks like just any other house, but there's a secret inside. If you were to drive by 3215 Wade Street, the house would pretty much look like any other normal house. But If you were to look closely, you would notice, well, there's no mailbox, there's no sidewalk, there's no driveway, and as you come up to the home, you you can't even see in the windows. And if you look to put a key in the door, well, well, the the keyholes have been plugged with steel. It's only when you go around behind the house and open up the doors and go inside that you see what's going on inside. And what's inside is a public utilities water booster pump station. I don't know what that is. Well, here's kind of what it is. What it is is giant pumps in the city of Raleigh that pump the water throughout the city. 
it maintains the pressure 24 hours a day so that the water goes uphill and doesn't flow backhill down to the plant. The max capacity of these pumps is 45 million gallons of water per day. Thousands of people drive by this public utility water booster pump station unaware what's going on. But without the powerful work of this pump station, the, the people in the city of Raleigh wouldn't be able to flush their toilets or, or take showers. Imagine what would happen. Now, if you lived in Raleigh and you knew what was going on in there, as you drove by, what would you do? Chances are you wouldn't get out of your car. You couldn't, there's nowhere to park it. But chances are you wouldn't get out of your car and bow down and pray to the pump station. That's kind of weird, right? But I, I do think, uh, maybe, maybe it's just me, but I think if I were to drive by that pump station, I would take a minute and go, hey, pump station, woo, you know, maybe like a little fist pump or something, you know, or, or if you're driving with your friends and you just interrupt them, hey, 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 check out that house. Let me tell you something about that house. Do you know? And you tell them the whole story. You might not remember that it's a public utilities water booster pump station, but uh, you would tell them what's going on inside. You know, in this letter, Paul has a concern for this congregation, and he's praying for this congregation so that they, that they would not drive by the, by the pump house and, and not take notice. All right. Not exactly, but he's praying that this, that this church would be spiritually enlightened, that they would not be blind to the powerful work of God, that God has won and is winning a mighty victory in the life of this church. See, Paul cares for this young church. He helped plant this church. He wants to see this church come more and more alive uh, to, in the gospel, this hope that God has given them. And so to us. Do we not need enlightenment as to who God is and what God is up to in the life of his people? We do. Without this spiritual enlightenment, we tend to drive through life blind to the glory of God and therefore emotionless in living our lives for him. You know, as I was thinking about this passage and meditating on it throughout the week, I couldn't help but think that Paul would pray this same prayer over us. Don't you think so? That we would have the eyes of our hearts open and enlightened, that we would be given a spiritual insight and revelation into, into God above. Oh, that we would experience these things in the life of our church. What we would see is this. We would see that God is powerfully working to bring the triumph in uh, victory of Christ into his church. And it would cause us, therefore, I think, to pray for even greater, deeper spiritual insights. And when it comes to us, that we would be transformed by it. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at um, this prayer of Paul uh, for our own benefit. And we're going to be looking at two things. We're going to look at spiritual insight and spiritual power. First, spiritual insight. You know, all around the world, every day, billions and billions of people 
are longing and searching for deeper insights into all kinds of things. Things like uh, weight loss, insights into things like relationships, insights into math and science and the, and the stock market, and uh, insights into human nature, insights into relationships. And you know, I think Paul would applaud all of those things. I don't think he would devalue any of these efforts that we have as human beings to find deeper insights in things. But what I do think he would have us uh, see is that all of these insights really pale in comparison with having the deep, powerful, spiritual insight of knowing God. And that's what he's bringing to us here in this passage. We see it in verse 16 through 18. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. What is Paul praying for? He's praying that these people would be, would be spiritually enlightened uh, to, the, to a greater understanding of God himself. You know, we human beings tend to overestimate our own intelligence. We, we think we have God all figured out, or at least well enough figured out. It's as if we human beings can really fully comprehend our creator. The truth is that we would be wise to receive this reality into our lives, is that we are the creature, not the creator. If we are to know the creator, he must reveal himself to me. I like how John Wesley put this. He wrote, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. It's true, isn't it? Our finite human minds are dependent upon God revealing himself to us. If you know anything true about God, it's because he's revealed it to you. And if you are to grow in your knowledge of anything true about God, it's because God will continue to reveal to you uh, who he is. So, do you see yourself in light of this? Do you see yourself as the creature, not the creator? Do you see yourself as dependent upon God? That if we were to know anything about him, that he must reveal it to us in a way that we can understand? And therefore, do you cry out like Paul here, that God would give you a a spirit of wisdom and a revelation um, into a knowledge of him? Maybe you're here this morning a little bit skeptical. And perhaps you're thinking, uh, what worth is there in knowing God? Is there any benefit to me for knowing more about God? It's kind of an American way of thinking things, right? It's, uh, you know, if God exists, it must be for my benefit in some way. But casting that aside, did you catch what Paul referred to, how Paul referred to God? Paul calls, calls God, what? The Father of glory. Here's what we must know and take into our hearts this morning. All that is good, all that is perfect, all that is lovely, and yes, all that is glorious, is in God himself. If you experience any of that in your life, it first flows from him. He is the source of all goodness and glory and greatness. Flows from him into this world. And so if we're to make sense of this world, who we are, uh, why we suffer, what our purpose is, and what the future holds. The Father of all glory is the one from whom we must turn to, to find these things. We need His revelation. 
And so Paul prays a prayer that we too as a church should be praying for each other. We must be praying for a deeper revelation of who God is. We must stop with any foolish notion that we know God well enough, as we are right now. We must stop being content with just a little bit of head knowledge about God. You know, it's true, many Christians spend a lot of time building up our head knowledge about God. But many Christians spend very little time with God, relating to God, getting to know God personally. I, I think that's perhaps why Paul says not just um, a knowledge of, of a head knowledge or head enlightenment that he talks about here, he also speaks of a, of a heart enlightenment. Do you see that? He says he prays for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. What is he getting at? When the Bible talks about, about uh, our heart, it refers to the whole inward self. Yes, your intellect, but also your emotions, right? You know, the head may, our heads may tell us what to do, but our hearts is what drives the bus, right? And so it's, that's what he's getting at. Our, our, that not just our heads to, to know about God, but that the, that the eyes of our hearts, our, our, human, our humanity at its very core would know God. And to know God is not just an intellectual exercise, it's a relational exercise as well. Paul is praying for such a deep spiritual insight that it presses into the very core of our being. And what he shows us here is there's some things that we need to be aware of, that we can press them into our present lives. He gives us three things. We see them in verses 18 through 19. Um, as we go through them, see if you can underline them, not in your pew Bible, but maybe in your bulletin. See if you can see what they are. Uh, we, we know what they are because we, we look for the word what is and what are, okay? Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Paul prays for three things. I'll give them to you in bullet points, and then we'll, we'll go through them just briefly. First, he prays for this church for, for an awareness of their hope. Then he prays for an awareness of their worth. And then he prays for an awareness of the immeasurable greatness of God's power. First, an awareness of their hope. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Now, what is the hope to which we've been called? Well, first, let me um, cast aside any notion that of, of a modern sense of hope. When the Bible refers to hope, it's not, uh, it's, it's not referring to wishful thinking, like I hope to retire to Costa Rica someday, or I hope to, to go to Disney World this year. It's not that kind of hope. The hope that God gives us is a certain hope, because it doesn't rest on us. It rests, it rests on his character and his promises. And so our hope is certain. When the Bible speaks of that, that's what it's meaning. We have a certain hope. And this hope that God has called us into is what Paul had been showing us the last few times we got together. In one big long praise in verse 3 through 14. I'm not going to go into it, but, but what he did was he rejoiced over the fact that God in his grace had called to himself a people. A people who experienced his mercy and forgiveness and his salvation. A people who before time even began were chosen to be his people. A people who were predestined for what? To be adopted as sons and daughters. And, and there's this promise that, 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 that God is going to watch over these people. And he's placed his Holy Spirit upon us uh, to seal us for that day in which he renews and restores all things. This is the hope that he's talking about here in this passage. 
And let me remind you, this is not a hope that we have created. The hopes that we create here on earth are so intangible, so fleeting. Uh, sometimes they get us excited. And sometimes we're like, oh shoot, why did I even chase after that hope? But the hope that, God, that we have in God is one that he gives us. See, see what Paul said? It's the hope that we've been called to. This is God's hope that he calls you to. If we but have eyes to see this hope, it would change us. See, people in Paul's day were full of anxiety. I don't know about modern Americans. Are we anxious people? Yeah, a lot of anxieties. And and in Paul's day, there was so much anxiety. You know what the, the popular people were? They were the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers. The Stoic philosophers, with regards to suffering and anxiety, they say what? Just keep a stiff upper lip. You can do it, you know? The Epicureans say, dude, just, just party your blues away, right? All right? We still have those two positions today, don't we? You know, um, but here's what what Paul is saying. He's he's telling these Christians here in this church. He says, you know, your hope doesn't lie in human hands, right? The anxieties that the world presses upon you uh, are, are, are is not in your hand. God has given you a hope that takes away our anxieties. Our hope is in God's hands. He has called us to a hope, and it is certain to come about. It's not wishful thinking. The second awareness that Paul prays for is that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, don't have time to go into this, but the last sermon we talked about inheritance, right? And what we saw is uh, when God refers to us as his inheritance, when the Bible talks about inheritance, it's not about, you know, God someday going to, you know, die and give you a bunch of bucks, right? That's not the Christian inheritance. It's not God's inheritance. But what we see is, is that often the Bible talks about how we, as his people, are God's heritage. We are, we are his treasured possession. We are his inheritance. He delights in us and over us. And so um, that's what we have here before us, is, is Paul wants us to realize, um, had to, have a, uh, to have our hearts enlightened, that we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What is he getting at? Paul is saying this. He's saying, if only you knew how valuable you are to God. If only you knew your worth in Christ. If only you had the eyes of your hearts enlightened to, to, just, to see just how much you are treasured by God. If you're, not a, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to ask this question of yourself. From what do you find your worth? Just how is your value measured and derived? And don't tell me you don't have anything. Every human being uh, uh, has something that they, where they look towards for their identity, for their worth, for their value. Now, I know I'm overgeneralizing things here a bit, so no angry emails at me, but, but here's the deal. For many men, their worth, their identity, their value comes from the workplace, from their career. And for many women, their value, their worth, their identity comes through relationships. What we need to see is that everyone apart from Christ uh, finds their value or their worth in, in human hands. It's human-derived. But God has given the Christian something different For the Christian, our worth is a divine worth. It is a gift from God to us. 
And yet many Christians are, live as if they're unaware of this identity that we have in Christ. Many a Christian man can't sleep at night because his identity is all wrapped up in his success at work. And many a, a Christian woman can't sleep at night because her identity is wrapped up in her relational struggles. My hope for us, if that's you here today, is that Paul's prayer may be, may be your prayer as well, that, that we may come to see as a church the glorious riches of God's inheritance, which is us. God has set us apart. We belong to him. We've been adopted by him as sons and daughters. That's where our worth comes from, not from things we manufacture, but in our relationship to God. If you are a Christian, your identity is not derived by what you have done or by what you do. Your worth is derived by God, from God. Your worth is is derived by the, the notion that you are his son or his daughter. You have been set aside by God as his treasured possession. Consider how this knowledge would stir us up, Grace Church. If only our eyes were open to where we really truly beheld our worth in God. That he sees us as treasured and valued. How might that change how we approach our own identities and our own desire to manufacture something robust that other people point to and say, wow, that person's got it all together. Consider the freedom and the power and the joy that that would give us. The third thing Paul prays for that we would comprehend is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. Christian, let me ask you this. Are you aware of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards you? Are you aware of it? It's kind of a trick question. I mean, careful how you answer it. I mean, if, if, God's, great, if God's great power is immeasurable, then it's impossible for us to fully comprehend it and to fully know it. But that's not Paul's desire here. His desire isn't that we'd measure God's great power towards us, but that we would know that his power is immeasurable. And that this immeasurable great power is for us. Perhaps you've heard a parent say, you know what, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my child if I had the power to do it. Well, think about that. You are God's child. His power is immeasurable towards you. And yet we can act as if God is limited in his power towards us. We pray to God and and our prayers don't come about just exactly how we would like them to come about. Or our lives aren't going necessarily according to our plan. And so we can doubt God's power towards us. But Paul says no. He prays that this church would have a God-given awareness of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards his children. Grace Church, oh, that we would know God's immeasurable, immeasurable great power towards us who believe. We would no longer be defined by what we lack. We would no longer be paralyzed by our seemingly overlooked circumstances. As Aaron Bierke pointed out last week, we would, we would not be a people who worshiped conditionally, that is, based, how things are, based on how things are going for us. But we would be a people who love God and delight in Him no matter our circumstances. 
That's the spiritual insight that Paul prays for. In the remaining verses, he elaborates, he elaborates on this immeasurably great power. The, the first two things are the, the hope and the inheritance. He'd already talked about those, mentioned them in his, in his prayer before. And now he's going to focus on the power. So our next point is, the final point is spiritual power. I've read recently that there's a special kind of treatment for, for autism. There are certain kinds of autism that manifest themselves as a child becomes completely focused on some dimension of his experience. Such a child can be so focused on a, a habitual activity or, or a familiar object that, that interacting with this single aspect of that child's life becomes that child's entire world. And so what the therapist will do is they will give the child some glasses, eyeglasses. But the bottom part are clouded over. It's only through the upper part of the lenses that the, that the child is able to see. And what this does is it forces the child to look up, to look up beyond its own little world and to consider a greater, wider world that is out there. In a like manner... Paul would have us lift our eyes in an awareness of the great might and power that God has worked for us. And if we would but have our hearts enlightened and look up, we would, we would recognize two types of power that Paul is pointing to here in this passage. He says that there, he shows us that there's a power above and that there is a power here. First, the power above, we see it in verse 19 through 22. See if you can pick up on the imagery. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above any rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This power above, this first aspect of it that, that, that Paul points us to, that God has given us, is, is resurrection power. God has raised him from the dead and seated him. God's power towards us to believe is power over sin and, and death. John Stott wrote these words. He, he wrote, Two powers which man cannot control but which hold him in bondage are death and evil. Man is mortal, he cannot avoid death. Man is fallen, he cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both and therefore can rescue us from both. I don't want to be too morbid here, but the reality is we're powerless over death and over evil. But our Lord is not. And God, through Jesus Christ, won us a victory over death and over evil. And it's his gift to us who believe. It's a resurrection power. It's a power not just for the day you believe, but it's a power for living your life as a Christian here and now. A power over sin and death. That which we are powerless over, Christ in his power has won a victory over that. 
God sent his son to live and to die and to rise again as victor over all that holds you and me in bondage. That's why it's called the gospel. The gospel means good news. Christ in his death took upon him our sin and our death. Christ in his rising from the dead gives us his eternal life. That's quite an exchange. I don't know about you. I kind of like that. That's God's gift to you who believe. It's no minor gift. It changes you for all eternity. The second power above that Paul illustrates is what you can call sovereign power or ruling power. Just as kings and lords are sovereign over their kingdoms here on earth, Jesus Christ, as Paul shows us, is sovereign over all things. He leaves no doubt as to what Jesus is or isn't sovereign over. Jesus is the victor who rose from the dead and is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. And then you pick up on that, it's like every dimension, every type of power is under him. Every political rule, every physical might, every spiritual forces in this age and in the age to come. Paul says, Jesus is greater than them all. And not just greater than them as a measure of degree, but he's over them. He rules over all uh, on earth and throughout all eternity and in, in heaven itself. That's the picture that Paul gives us. But as Christians, we often don't see that. We have a hard time seeing that Jesus is on his throne. There's times when our circumstances seem so dire. We wonder, really, where is your power, right? There's great suffering in our life, and we can question as to where is this loving God with his power. You know, there's many people who don't even believe in in Christ because they see so much sin and suffering in this world. But here's the deal. The cross shows us that God not only knows about suffering, but he has entered into it. This is God's son who suffered on our behalf. And he's won a victory over it as he rose from the dead. And so it is hard for us to see God's power at work when we're going through difficult times. That's why we need to pray for spiritual enlightenment. That, that though our circumstances look this way, that we would see really what God is doing for us, even in the midst of our circumstances. So those are the powers above. Now Paul points to, uh, we see the resurrection power and ruling power. The last power is a power that we have here below. Uh, it's power with us. Paul, tells us. Paul tells us that God gave Christ to be the head of the church and he is over over the church and that and that the church is is his body and that he powerfully fills his church so that we may be his people and accomplish his goals here on, on earth. We read that in verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know we don't have time to really mine the depths of this, what he's saying here. I encourage you to meditate upon it this week. But what, what, what he's telling us here is that we need to try to understand the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. That he is the head and we are his body here on earth. And that he has filled us with all that we need uh, to, to live and flourish here on earth as his people. Now, a couple quick points. Some people 
will think it's laughable and ludicrous to even suggest that this worldwide collection of people who call themselves Christians is really God's anointed purpose, uh, purposeful body of people to, br- or to bring about his purposes here on earth. A lot of people laugh at that. They scoff at that. They roll their eyes at that. And, and, at, and at one level, we must agree, there's a lot in the history of the Christian church that needs to be repented of and, uh, and apologized for. But we must not make a logical mistake. We must not mistakenly conclude that just because a group experiences failure, uh, that does not mean that that group is not still called to be um, what it's called to be. The the fact that the church has failed in her calling does not mean that God has not called the church, right? Maybe that's confusing. I hope not. Maybe this will help you. The Bible also says that Jesus is the great shepherd and we are his sheep. Now, I don't know if you know much about sheep, but sheep are stupid, all right? Stupid. You can say that because he wouldn't understand what you're saying. They're, st- they're that stupid, all right? Sheep are stupid. They continually do not listen to their shepherd's voice. They continually find themselves in life-threatening circumstances from which they are incapable of extricating themselves. Sheep even bite their own shepherds. Sheep are stupid. We are sheep. Okay? We're not the shepherd. So I'm not surprised when people roll their eyes when they hear that that the church is a glorious means by which God has chosen to bless this world. I understand why they might roll their eyes. But understand this. When Jesus looks at his church, when Jesus looks at what he calls his bride, he knows her full and well. He knows what he's given his life for. And when he looks at his church, he does not roll his eyes. The church is his bride. He looks upon us with tenderness in his eyes. He knows our failings. He's given his life for our failings. That's how much we are treasured by him. So yeah, you might have a hard time comprehending that the church is something special, but in Jesus' eyes, she is. And that's really what matters. Another point to take home is this. Far too many Christians, and this is where some of you might feel the weight of this message, far too many Christians, and I would guess perhaps most Christians in America, have a highly individualized salvation experience. Those are some big words. What am I getting at? For many Christians, it's all about them and Jesus, their own little private relationship with Christ, to the extent that they in no way see themselves, or very little way see themselves connected to the body. Jesus died for the church, not for individuals scattered around the world. Jesus died for you to bring you into his body.
for most new Christians, we have a number of new Christians here. For most new Christians, you're like, of course. Well, yeah, I'm part of his body. You've been well-loved here at Grace Church. Here's what tends to happen over time as you supposedly mature as a Christian. You distance yourself further and further away from the church. Why? Well, uh, ignorance, uh, immaturity. Um, a lot of times you've been hurt, wounded. Sheep bite, remember? Not, they don't just bite the shepherd. They bite each other, right? And so I regularly have conversations with Christians who say, yeah, I really don't go to church. Church is just kind of messed up. How wrong you are. Here's the reality. The very means by which God has given you to flourish is the church. If you cut yourself off from this body, you're not, you're not going to experience the, the joy and the, and the, the reality of, of, of being loved by God and, and experience that re- relational love of, of his body. You're going to miss out on God's best for you. We, we're called to be a part of his body. I think the reason why the very next section in this passage, chapter 2, what is it about? It's the part where, where Paul tells his church, it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. It's the gift of God. Not by your own works, so you can't boast. Why? Why would he bring that into the equation? Well, we'll talk about that next week. But, but, but the tendency that we have is we need to be reminded that we're saved by grace. That everybody here in this church who belongs to Christ is saved by grace. We need each other. God's means for maturing you and growing you and showing his love to you is to include you in his body. So I'm afraid if, you know, if some, some people here just come to church on Sundays and you're not really connected with the body. I don't mean to be hard on you, but I want to encourage you to, to see your need, okay, for the body. Christ is, is the head of the church. As messed up as the church is, I know she's messed up. He loves the church. He loves the people in the church. And that's God's appointed means for you experiencing his love is through his body. And you need to trust that he will fill you when you are a part of his body. I think that's about all I have to say on that. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to come forward for communion. And what I want you to do is I want you to look around this room. I want you to see the body. I want you to see the people that Jesus treasures. And I know maybe you have some history with somebody in the room, maybe. Or perhaps you've been, uh, perhaps you haven't been uh, patted on the back enough, or who knows what. But look around this room and see the body. See them as Jesus sees his body, as dearly loved and cherished. And come forward and feed on Christ. Remind yourself that God's calling upon your life as a corporate calling. He has called you into his body so that you can be a part of building it up. And he's called you into his body so that you can be the means by which we bring into this world, which is perishing, the aroma of Christ. We do this together. This is our calling. And I think that's why he, he prays for a spiritual insight. This, we need God's spirit for this. This is not a human work. It's hard uh, to love the church. It's hard to be involved in the church because of her brokenness. But there's a beauty about it. 
So that's the spiritual power that we must pray into our lives, that we would experience Christ's resurrection power and his sovereign power, that we'd be filled with um, the power of Christ here as his body. I hope we see that this morning, that this spiritual work that Paul prayed for, I hope we're starting to see it in our own lives. Uh, Perhaps even as we've been meditating on this passage, maybe God has opened the eyes to your heart to, to his greatness, to his goodness, to his glory, to his love for you that he has helped remind you of, in his eyes, you are his cherished child. I hope you've come to experience more fully this. I think that when we become more and more spiritually enlightened, and this is going to be the process for us throughout the rest of our lives until Christ returns, the, the more spiritually enlightened we are, the more the eyes of our hearts are, are open to the, to the glory of God, the, the more we are captured by the glory of God, and the more that we, we, we enter into God's story here on earth. And the more committed we are to it. You know, uh, Russell Wilson is a highly praised uh, quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. But he wasn't always highly praised. (laughs) In fact, uh, when he was drafted in 2011, he was drafted in the third round. He was drafted behind Andrew Luck, way behind Andrew Luck, in RG3. And yet, Wilson has a passion and a longing for success, for glory on the football field, And yeah, we can praise those kind of things. You know, God has made us uh, to express his glory in the marketplace and in in all kinds of areas, in in the theater and also on on football fields. But Wilson is so caught up in the success of it and the glory of it in, in I think, a healthy way that he sees his Seattle Seahawks going and winning multiple Super Bowl championships. And guess what? They're playing next Sunday in the Super Bowl. Wilson is so caught up in the goodness and the glory of football that he regularly tweets this, hashtag, no time to sleep. He gets up early in the morning, he's tired, but, he, but, it, but this, this passion, this vision, this calling has captured him to the point that, that um, he forgoes sleep in order to, to press on, uh, to be victorious. The eyes of his heart have been, his heart has been opened uh, to the joy of, of performing at a high level. He's, and he's motivated by that delight. And so too you and me. When we are captivated, when our eyes are lifted up, uh, when we see what God has done for us in Christ, that, that is meant to capture our hearts. It's called to, to, to make us tweet, you know, uh, no time for sleep or whatever that is, you know, and, and to really go out and to live and to serve in God's story. This morning I just pray, that, oh, that our eyes would be opened, um, spiritually opened to um, the glory of God, that we would have our eyes of our hearts opened so that we could see the powerful work that he has done for those who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you see us often as we don't see ourselves. We need your mercy. We're dependent upon your grace. We thank you for the powerful work that you have done for us. Give us eyes to see that. Give us hearts that resonate with you and your work. Give us a spirit that presses this deep into our center of our being, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.